0: One, two, three. Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.
1: We have a we have at least an hour of up to fit into half an hour, so let's get started. The uh, <clears throat> price of oil is relatively strong. I would say that the macro risks to the price of oil going higher are more than they were earlier this year, Um one of the macro, macro risks is the chaos coming out of Afghanistan uh emboldens the uh you know the Islamic uh religious uh movements and <clears throat> that that always has the potential for reducing supply of oil. I mean just for example the Houthis in Yemen which are <clears throat> which are uh financed by the Iranian Shia launched and this is an admission by the Saudis, they launched in just the last 24 or 36 hours about three or four missiles and about 10 drones, all designed to try to land in the middle of Saudi oil infrastructure. Uh, they all missed. Uh, of course, the Saudis take credit for their missing, but uh, it's, you know, when <laughs> to see the Taliban you know, kind of chase the infidels, namely us, out of, out of Afghanistan, uh, definitely is going to create more activity like that. On natural gas, uh, gas natural gas has really gotten strong. I mean, LNG in, in Asia is $17 during a kind of a low-demand month uh, in, the, in the fall, the shoulder month, so to speak, before winter starts. And uh, it's like a dollar less in Europe, so uh, that has really helped U.S. gas pricing. And U.S. gas pricing is very strong. Uh, and uh, again, we're you know we're trading October contracts now as the near month. Normally in October, you, you have a slowdown because as your summer demand comes off before the winter demand takes off, but. You know, if we're doing $4 and change in a shoulder month, that bodes well for the natural gas market. Um, I think what's happening in both oil and natural gas is the large companies, I'm talking international oil now, are very motivated to try to do less fossil fuel and more power. Um, the kind of power, and you see more, a lot of this happening in Europe, BP and Total and, and Shell. Uh, buying uh, wind farms and solar farms. And uh, and so they're becoming kind of like power companies rather than transportation fuel countries, companies. Uh, it's very, it's like almost inevitable that they'll overdo that and uh, and we'll get short oil. Um, and uh, I don't think a sustainable price <clears throat> above current level, 70 grand or so, is you know I don't think a price above that level is like likely sustainably because you're going to start to lose demand to electric vehicles. But uh, natural gas, I don't know whether you know $17 LNG is sustainable. I think it probably isn't. But uh, you know if you buy the LNG, you buy the gas for in the U.S. for four dollars, cost you maybe a buck and a half to turn it into LNG. Cost you a buck to move to Europe? there's huge profit potential there, um, which uh, you know will motivate uh, people to uh, use the export facilities we have in to their maximum uh, capacity, and, and also will encourage more LNG capacity to be built. Um, the uh, as far as power demand. The switch to renewables, wind and solar, uh, is just going to take longer. There isn't enough rate of return in that in those assets to justify the kind of capital that's going to be required. So, you, you know, while <clears throat> there's no question, natural gas as power fuel has to has to compete with wind and solar. Which, if you think about wind and solar, their incremental variable cost is zero. Uh, so. <clears throat> um, Power gets bid every day, uh, supervised by the ISOs, the independent system operators. Wind and solar, next day, is going to get bid for nothing. But, uh, you know, the capacity for when the sun isn't shining or it's very hot or very cold or whatnot is from natural gas. So uh, that part of <coughs> natural gas demand looks pretty good, despite, you know, the competition from renewables renewables. <coughs> just want to divert a bit here and talk about MedCol. Um, um, we started a company called Ramaco, which has really grown up a lot in the last couple of weeks. Um, the reason for that is medcoal pricing, which is completely artificial. Normally, medcoal pricing takes off because of typhoons in Australia. Australia is the largest producer of medcoal they don't make any steel in Australia, at least with blast furnaces, so it's all exported. The Australian government uh, is amongst the governments that uh, believe that the that it's better than even chance that COVID started with a lab leak, especially in that lab in Wuhan, and they continue to call for you know more international. Uh, review of that. The Chinese hate that. Well, the Chinese have put it, put, has had since oh, this time last year an embargo on Australian med coal. And for the longest time, that return the price of Australian med coal, there's no way in Australia is going to back down. The Australian politicians, either, and uh, across the political spectrum, to back down. There's no way the Chinese are going to back down. So that embargo kind of in place, kind of indefinitely. Mm-hmm. What has happened is, in order to fill their met coal requirements, a fair amount of U.S. exports of met coal is uh, around 40 million tons a year is being loaded in Baltimore and Norfolk and sent directly to China. So the blast furnaces in the U.S. that need coal to make coke and in Europe find themselves short and so the price rise has been, you know, like every day. Uh, once again, if, if somehow you could get end the Chinese embargo, everything would go back to normal and price would come down. But that doesn't seem likely. And so we have a, you know, a greatly elevated petrol market to be very good for producers. Um, to just move to... Uh, Interest rates and capital markets, um, I think there is a, uh, whether you're talking Fed governors or uh, uh, participants in the capital market, a realization that the Federal Reserve has just waited way too long to start reducing liquidity in our markets, that uh, the $120 billion a month $40 $40 billion of mortgage bonds and $80 billion of government bonds that are purchased every month, that that should have been in a phase-down mode starting as early as, I don't know, February, March of this year. Why the Fed didn't do that is unclear. I think with the benefit of hindsight, it'll view, be viewed as a, as a huge mistake. Uh, the, uh, the jobs report last Friday was very weak. 250,000 jobs when 700,000 was expected. Uh, there are 10 million job openings that are unfilled. What uh, is In order to get workers, uh, people are increasing wages. That's good. I mean, that helps with inequality, which is one of our huge issues that we face. Uh, but it does create uh, wage inflation, and this idea that the inflation, which has been running 4 or 5% year-to-year uh, year is transitory, you know, we'll see. Uh, it may not be. And uh, so uh, the, the Jerome Powell, was, Jay Powell, was supposed to be uh, picked to as the next chairman. Uh, over before Labor Day, that didn't happen. Uh, I kind of suspect the Biden White House thinks that they'll do better in the 22 midterms if interest rates stay low and there's too much liquidity in the market. Um, they, uh, may postpone, uh, picking him as for another term. Uh, the progressive wing of the party wants this Lady Lanarra Brainerd picked. Um, uh, they have a lot of horse trading to do. Uh, their big, uh, bill, the three and a half trillion dollar bill that they want to do with budget reconciliation. Uh, they're going to try to get that done. They have to sometime that the treasury secretary has told them that sometime by the end of October, they have to get a waiver on, uh, the, uh, debt ceilings. Uh, the debt ceiling is way down, like around eighteen trillion. What they do, they just waive it until after the next election. So you can expect them to not increase the debt ceiling. The debt is now twenty-eight trillion or something. They won't. They won't increase it. They'll just waive compliance until like February of twenty-three. You know, well after the November twenty-two election uh, or March or something like that to give the new Congress a chance to focus on it. Um, Republicans have said, "Don't expect any votes from us." You're, you want to do reconciliation in the Senate, put put waving the debt ceiling in because, of course, Republicans will use it as a campaign issue in, in November twenty-two. Um, there's enough capital markets uncertainty here that I think some of the larger firms with research departments, the Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, have said uh, to clients. Be on the alert for a significant drawdown. You know, like rather ten percent or twenty percent, they picked fifteen percent. Uh, they may be right. It's certainly more of a risk now. Mike and I talked earlier. I think we're we to turn it over to Mike in a second. But I think if we found a position that we're a company we're really interested in, we would probably buy a smaller position now under the theory that if we had you know, a 10, 15, 20% decline in stock indices, we'd we'd be able to buy those shares for less. Um, uh, In terms of selling positions, because you own a good company but seems overvalued, there's plenty of history that shows that never works. No one ever, no matter how good they are, gets the timing right. Better better to stick with positions, especially if you like the company. And... uh, With that, I promised over a long weekend to read a bunch of 10 Qs, uh, some of the non-energy companies that Mike's been finding. I I read a bunch of them. I came back, I was telling Mike earlier, the one I like the best is NVIDIA, having read those 10 Qs. And uh, uh, I mean, not that NVIDIA doesn't have some issues amongst the fact that it's really high price relative to cash flow, but still, in terms of a business that uh, seems to have a really strong proprietary position. Uh, everything else I read, I must have read seven or eight, ten Qs, and I kept coming back and saying, geez, none of, them are, none of them are as good as Nvidia." And with that, over to Mike.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I feel the same way, but I've gone through the same uh, revolutions of like, "Man, it's gotten expensive. Maybe I should take some off the table," but. In the past, and I, I've been a shareholder of NVIDIA in the past, so I can look at my own experience and every single time that I've sold a little bit and then tried to buy it back later, I would have been better off just holding the entire position from the very beginning. So that's my learning on that subject. <laughs> um, I, uh, I've i got two more companies that i uh, IPO'd in the last 12 months to talk about. Should I go ahead and start with those? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Great. Okay. So I decided to take a look at healthcare information services companies uh, this week. So there's a handful that IPO. There's also more that SPAC, but I'll focus in on two of them today. Um, The first one is called GoodRx. Uh, The second one's called Doximity. So let's start with GoodRx. So before we can talk about the company, we need to. GoodRx operates in the prescription drug space, which is, um, I think I have to go through and explain some of the things in prescription drugs before I can explain what GoodRx does. So I'll give an overview of GoodRx and then a few of the points that I pulled out of um, what I liked in the S1 and and the following. Uh, filings that they did. So anybody that's filled a prescription is aware that the consumer-facing side of the prescription drug industry is plagued with lack of transparency and huge discrepancies in the way drugs are priced. Uh, the, here's a high-level overview of how the pricing process works. First, the manufacturers, I think uh, Johnson & Johnson, will set a list price. Um, then the manufacturer sells that drug to a wholesaler, generally at a discount of 2 to 5% to list. Um, then the wholesaler gets uh, essentially applies a markup uh, of about twenty percent, which is uh, and then that price is known as the average wholesale price. Your pharmacy then purchases from that wholesaler um, at the average wholesale price, um, and then the pharmacy sets their own price, which is again another markup on top of the average wholesale price. Um, this is called the usual and customary price this is what we consider the full retail price for the drug. Um, this price can vary extensively. Like if you take your prescriptions to five different pharmacies, there's a good chance you'll get five different prices. Um, and for some of those more expensive and uh, stranger or, you know, off label or uh, sorry non generic medications, it can be in the hundreds of dollars of difference. Um, so, so, it actually gets even more complicated than that because the patient could pay with cash, they could pay with um, a discount by a coupon, and they could pay with a copay or a coinsurance pay. So all those things result in different end prices for the consumer. So the, the point here is, is that GoodRx, is, um, their mission is to make this process not as... Uh, convoluted as it is and try to deliver some value to the end consumer. Um, GoodRx claims to be able to reduce the cost of virtually every generic and brand prescription by more than 70% of the list price, which results in a price that's often less than the typical insurance copay, meaning it's cheaper to get it through, through GoodRx than it would be to even use your insurance. Um, to date, or at least as of the IPO, they've saved Americans and invested $20 billion. <clears throat> so before we can understand how good our actually makes money, we need to understand the pharmacy benefit manager. And I'll pause here because I am not totally an expert on this space and familiar with the way things work, but... I'll run through a high level of what pharmacy benefit benefit manager does. Um, They're hired by health plan uh, to interface with drug manufacturers and process the prescription claims. In short, they're the connectors between the payers, so the health plans and the drug companies. Um, They work to facilitate the best possible health outcomes at the best uh, cost. Um, Their mission is to essentially reduce spend by negotiating pricing across a large network and Secondly, increase access to medication. Um, as we are well aware, there's issues with non-compliance with medications that actually cost health systems quite a, and insurance and insurers quite a bit of money. The third thing they do, which is relevant to good RX, is they they facilitate rebate programs, um, which pharmaceutical companies use to um, help incentivize or. Um, make it easier for customers to access drugs while maintaining a high list price. So 90% of GoodRx's income comes from coupon codes, which they achieve those coupons by negotiating with the primary uh, pharmacy benefit managers. So anytime a customer fills a prescription at one of the hundreds of thousands of pharmacies that accept GoodRx coupon codes, GoodRx gets paid a fee on that coupon. Think of it like a commission or a spit. Um So interesting stats about the company. 68% of healthcare providers surveys have recommended GoodRx to patients. The reason they do that is for because physicians are typically uh, – um, uh, evaluated based on customer satisfaction. They find good Rx is a good thing they can recommend to their, to the patients because they can get better prices. So it's kind of a win-win, um, there, the company, um, is cash flow positive. They were actually po- uh, profitable in 2019. Um, they, had a interesting, they had a huge G&A expense last year. Um, and it tri- it's trickling into this year, but it's slowly, slowly going down. Part of that was um, uh, non-cash expense in the way of it's bonuses paid to, to the team when they IPO'd. Um, part of that is also cost-incurred um, with going public because part of that process they went through an audit, found and you know, were found to have inadequate financial controls, so they had to beef up their uh, financial controls in order to go from public. Um, so what you know, so thinking about the company, where do they sit? I think they're in a pretty cool position as far as. Uh, the more they're able to gain leverage over the prim- uh, pharmacy benefit managers, the better everybody, as far as their customers uh, are concerned, benefits. Um, the Another thing to think about is Amazon is entering this market as well. They acquired um, a company called PillPack, which is a direct-to-consumer buy a mail pharmacy. Um, so we'll be expecting some action there. I, I don't necessarily think that's so much a threat, but probably a... Um, probably validation that this market has some opportunity for a good technology solution. Um, and I'll stop there. Uh, Hunt, you got to go? There's no question. This is There's no question that money can be
1: saved here. I mean, the system as it exists between insurance companies and pharmaceuticals and whatnot is just can, can definitely be improved. And Amazon will be working to do that, they see it as an opportunity. Uh the uh of all the solutions to try to reduce cost and increase service and whatnot, good RX seems to be the best. It is very popular amongst the uh long only hedge funds are spending lots of time on it. If you uh look around on the internet you're gonna find some uh some people uh who've tried to go through uh, and explain uh, what uh, what Mike's just led us through uh, as, as the uh, as the advantage uh, that uh, GoodArx has. And, and there they'll, they'll will be a first mover advantage here. In other words, to the extent, one of the reasons they're not more profitable is they're spending a lot of money marketing. To the extent that their base of business gets to be large, they'll give them leverage with the Pharmacy benefit uh, people; it'll give them large with the pharmaceutical companies, and and as Mike mentioned, they are, are very uh, they get good ratings from the doctors who whose patients use good RX. So it's it's a really interesting business. Uh, we only have about five minutes left. Let's uh, let's get into the second one that uh, Mike found, which in advance. He told me this morning he doesn't like as much. Uh, I've actually already, uh, because GoodRx had come to my attention another route, I'd already been through it. I must say it's interesting, but I'm going to be at least as interested in getting a file for the next company Uh, Mike's going to cover with you during the remaining five minutes or so.
0: Perfect. Sounds good. And, And just one more comment on GoodRx. I think the reason that it's super exciting is that essentially they're a demand aggregation platform and that is the fundamental business model of google and uh, amazon and uh, microsoft in some ways and facebook and any of the other successful technology companies so they've applied it to a, a new spot okay so so that let's move on to doximity um we've got five minutes and i think that'll be enough to get through this so um doximity is essentially uh, LinkedIn for physis- physicians. So, um, uh, as a as a group, physicians were not active on LinkedIn at all. Um, Doximity came up with a um, a really cool business model for them, where they essentially provide tools and resources to physicians um, that they find useful, and it's everything from when you're coming when you're choosing a residency program coming out of medical school they provide this matching system to help you determine which which hospital or which residency program would be the best fit for you to um the mobile app enables a couple really nice features for physicians to securely contact patients whether it's by uh, essentially a zoom type of connection or um or even phone calls which protects their own uh their own uh, information and provides a secure HIPAA compliant uh, pathway to make those communications. So there's tools that are all free, uh, well, for the most part, free to the the physicians. Um, So they monetize this platform by enabling pharmaceutical companies and health systems to get the right content services and peer connections to the right medical professionals through a variety of, of modules. Um, their customers include all of the top 20 pharmaceutical manufacturers, and the company claims an ROI of 10 to 1 for pharmaceutical uh, spending on its platform. The health system customers, essentially, they're, they're using Doximity's tools for, uh, for recruitment. Um, they have all of the top 20 health hospitals and health systems in the U.S. Um, and these organizations have realized a median ROI greater than 13 to 1. So, no surprise, those are, those are fantastic numbers. Um, anybody that's getting that sort of ROI out of a, a project uh, marketing and advertising spend is, is likely to continue. Um, <clears throat> so, Doximity offers all of these services by subscription model, um, and that's the vast majority of their revenue, about 93%. Um, interesting stats: 80% of physicians use this platform. Um, their go-to-market strategy is a land and expand model. Essentially, they find one product line at a top-tier pharmaceutical company, get in the door there, and then expand to other product lines um, using their own ROI data from an initial launch. And there are other there are other customers as well. Um, They do have other revenue sources. They charge a little bit for the telehealth feature, which is essentially a Zoom designed for doctors. Um, They have a net retention rate of 167%. We've covered net retention before, a very important uh, metric for subscription services, meaning net of customer churn, the existing cohort grows by uh, increases by uh, 67% per year. They spend very little money on advertising because they have strong network effects. Although I believe they spend a good amount of money on sales uh, because it's sort of help elephant hunter type of uh, uh, a sales force. It's expensive on a free cash flow for share bases, but uh, again, the, the, the growth prospects are pretty good. Um, but over past fiscal year, they grew revenues by 78%. They've actually been growing and profitable for multiple years now. I think at least three full fiscal years they've been profitable. And that's that.
1: Do you have just the symbol, Mike? Yes, the symbol is DOCS, D-O-C-S. I'm definitely going to... I had already spent time on GoodRx. I'm definitely going to spend some time on uh since it's so hard to pronounce, let's just call it docs DOCF uh, by uh, next Wednesday. in the meantime, everyone stay healthy and uh, and we'll look forward to talking next Wednesday. take care.
0: Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.